And Sunday mornings were in a series entitled Encouragements from the Book of Second Corinthians. And we'll be making our way to verse 17, which will be our focus, um, but not in terms of the time that we'll spend there, but in th- because Paul uh, builds to that uh, point, that great, great encouragement that is found in verse 17. But he begins all of it in verse 11. And so... I'll begin reading there uh, if you uh, join me in your hearts. Paul writes, Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but uh, we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known to your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, uh, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. If, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful to be able to worship You in spirit and in truth. You've given us so much to respond to. You've been so good to us in your faithfulness, in your love, and all the different ways that you do that, even in your chastening and even in your discipline within our lives. And we're grateful that you are our God, and we're grateful that you have given us so many reasons to give you praise. And we pray, Lord, that you would open up this passage to us and that you would show us Um, just exactly how it is intended to impact each of our lives this morning. And we pray for this work of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In verse 17, we come to one of the most famous verses in terms of encouragement to be found in uh, the entirety of the Bible. And it describes what it is that happens to a Christian at the moment that we're born again. And it is important for us to understand a little bit about, once again, the circumstances that the Apostle Paul found himself in as he wrote this letter. And they were circumstances that were instrumental in what it is that got birthed in, in, this, uh, in this letter. Second Corinthians is by far the most personal of all of Paul's New Testament uh, epistles, but uh, unfortunately, and fortunately, all at the same time, it is uh, painfully personal. And so many of the gems, the beautiful things that are written in this letter, uh, they come forth to the surface because of the difficulty of his life and the pain of the circumstances that he found himself uh, in. 
and uh, in particular related to his relationship to the church in Corinth. It was a church that Paul, God had used Paul to establish. It was a church that was established at tremendous uh, sacrifice, self-sacrifice on Paul's part, and then having done all of the hard work in birthing and establishing uh, this church, it appears that a, a group of men within the church had risen up to positions of leadership. They wanted to take over the church, and the churches continued um, viewing of Paul as and his uh, and his authority within the church, his pastoral authority, his apostolic authority within the church, the esteem in which they held them. That was an obstacle to them and what it is that they wanted to do in taking it over. And probably the Apostle Paul in his position uh, was the lone obstacle that they faced at that particular uh, point in, in time. And so uh, they were endeavoring to get the entire church to turn against Paul uh, in the hopes of asserting their own leadership and, and authority over the church. And they did so by publicly accusing him, as we've seen, of a lack of integrity uh, that his yes doesn't mean yes and his no doesn't mean no. They condemned him and his failure to supply the church with reference letters. They viewed his perishing, the decline of the Apostle Paul's body because of the difficulty of his life and his ministry as it evidence that God, God's favor was not upon his life. And then here in chapter 5, I mean shockingly, uh, apparently they add the charge that Paul was mad that he was emotionally and mentally unstable, as we'll see in a moment in verse 13. And as we've seen continually uh, in this letter, uh, the spiritual gems of encouragement in Paul uh, birthed out from uh, extraordinarily difficult circumstance, and that's usually the case within our lives. Uh, so often the things that are really worth learning in life. The things that come to rise to the surface and stay at the surface the rest of our lives are things that we learn in difficulty. It's one of the ways that God works all things together for good in, in our lives as Christians. You might have noticed as we read here that in these seven verses, the Apostle Paul uses the word therefore three times. He repeats it and uh, including making it the first word of, of verse 17 and the first word of this verse is, that is this tremendous encouragement. And, and he uses the word in verse 11, in verse 16, and in verse 17. And so uh, that reminds us that this encouraging truth in verse 17 has a context. And if we don't understand the context a little bit, then we'll never be able to fully appreciate uh, the conclusion of, of all of it there in verse 17. You notice the context of the promises. We begin in uh, uh, verse 11. Uh, Paul let them know, first of all, that he lived his life with an integrity that is fashioned by the knowledge, as he says in verse 10, the knowledge that one day he would stand before Jesus Christ himself at the bema seat or the reward seat of Christ and he would give an account for his life and for his uh, ministry, as, as all Christians uh, will, including the, those that were in the church at, at Corinth. And that he lived his life with an integrity that was fashioned by a very, very deep fear of God, a great reverence for God, 
a reverence for God that was so great that he used, uh, put it in the category of terror. In other words, Paul is saying that he, as he writes to them, that he was drop-dead serious about his personal life as a Christian and about his Christian uh, ministry. And, uh, and, and then he went on to say that his life and his ministry were well known to God there in verse 11, speaking of his confidence that God could testify to the truth of his uh, in integrity, and that when he had been among them, that is the church at Corinth, they had seen nothing in his personal life or ministry that wasn't consistent with, uh, with his integrity as a Christian man, as a, as a, a, a Christian, and then as an, an apostle and as a servant of the Lord. And then in verse 12, the second thing Paul does is he lets them know that this is what uh, they should have let his detractors know about him and uh, as he was being publicly uh, defamed by them. Paul is saying, there, there shouldn't be a need for me to write a letter to protect my reputation among you as a church. And he, and he says, again, there's no need for me to commend myself to you again because you have already witnessed this in me. You witnessed it for 18 months. You saw nothing that indicated any lack of seriousness about the Lord or lack of integrity within my life. And then very interestingly, Paul let them know that he wasn't saying this in any way to boast in himself at all, but to give them a reason to boast in Paul. In other words, to be proud to be associated with Paul. That's where, that's where they should have been coming from. To consider it a distinct privilege of theirs. To uh, have known him in the way that they did. To have had the church birthed by him. To still be under his pastoral uh, care. And they should have withstood Paul's detractors and their slander with these facts with their own first-hand knowledge of what they knew the Apostle Paul uh, to be and, and withstood these selfishly ambitious leaders rather than staying silent and then forcing Paul to defend himself in this way. And then very significantly, he described these false leaders as those who give a greater weight to a person's outward appearance. That's how they were judging Paul rather than the, the content of their character. And he'll, continue, he'll return to this in, in a moment as he continues. And then third in verses three and four, uh, 13 and 14, rather, Paul then addressed an apparent charge by his detractors, his slanders, the charge that he was mad. They were charging that he was mentally and emotionally unstable. Uh, and uh, to be beside uh, himself, and to be beside oneself was an ancient phrase. It's common even yet today, but it's a phrase that's used for someone who is insane, someone who's gone mad. Um, if you ever uh, are, see somebody that's standing at a, a bus stop or really just in California walking down uh, a street on any given day, and they are talking to themselves. 
And uh, here at a bus stop, perhaps, the person's having a conversation. There's nobody next to them. They're having a conversation with themselves. They're having a conversation with someone they believe is beside them. But they're having a conversation with themselves. And, and it is a mark of insanity, a mark of, of madness and somebody that's in, in need of help. They're not in, connected with reality. And, and imagine the absolutely indescribable pride that a person would have to have to declare the Apostle Paul to be insane and then to do it in an effort to discredit the intensity and the zeal of his commitment to God and God's call upon his life. Because the suffering he was going through in his life was because of his zeal for God's call upon him as a Christian and God's call upon him in his ministry. And they looked at that level of commitment of a Christian to the things of God and they esteemed it to be insane. And they spread the rumor among the church that Paul's gone mad. Paul's gone uh, crazy. And to take what ought to have been a cause in their lives for the for most utmost respect for the Apostle Paul and to make it a cause for suspicion and for slander. And I'll tell you, we better be prepared for this as the day of the Lord's return grows closer. For carnal and lukewarm Christians to attack you as crazy, to attack you as extreme, for simply being obedient to the Christianity that is found in the Bible and walking with God and serving with God in a way that is, is a, a proper response to the sacrifice that's been made for us by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for us to be uh, saved. And then in verse 14, Paul informed them that what they were witnessing in his life was not madness, but it was love. And not his love for God supremely. That's not what's being spoken about, but God's love for him. The love of Jesus on the cross imparted within Paul a, a love for them and for all Christians. And Paul is declaring, you are not seeing insanity in me. You are simply seeing the love of Jesus for the church. The love that He demonstrated upon the cross. And now it's being manifested through me to you and to others. And then forth in verse 15. While still on the subject of insanity, Paul reminded them and us that Jesus died on the cross not only to provide us with the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, but in order that we might no longer live our lives consumed with ourselves but to live a life in which we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. Again, they were not seeing insanity in Paul. They were seeing the most simple, basic demands of a Christian. And that is to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. A life that understands the full implications of the death of Jesus Christ upon that cross. And with that, we come to the second therefore in verse 16. 
And Paul says, therefore, from now on, in other words, now because we are Christians, we no longer live for ourselves, but rather to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. He said, we regard no one according to the flesh. That is, we do not regard, we do not judge, we do not come to conclusions about others based solely or supremely upon our carnal assessment of who and what they are based upon externals. And the word regard that he uses here in the Greek is a very, very powerful word. It means to know or to judge intuitively. It is to judge a person based upon their externals as opposed to judging them on the basis of a deep and meaningful understanding of them, or to judge them as God judges a person in looking at their character and at their life. And once, uh, once we did, uh, Paul says, that's how we judged everyone. But now being Christians, he says, we're no longer to do that. To judge people or to come to conclusions about people, their character, their value, upon mere externals, based upon their race or their nationality or their titles or lack of titles or their material wealth or lack of material wealth or their education or their position or their class or their physical appearance. And these were the kind of things that were highly esteemed in Corinth as a Greek city. This is how they viewed uh, people from that vantage point as a whole. And they were probably, this was the means by which Paul was being judged and as a result being badly misjudged by his detractors and here openly calling on the Christians there to join them in that false judgment as well. But what they didn't understand in trying to do this to Paul is that Paul knew this game very, very well. He knew this game better than they knew this game because Paul was a former Pharisee. And the Pharisees made the Greeks look like pikers, like novices in the game of judging people on the basis uh, of uh, externals. Paul wrote of this season in his life in Philippians chapter 3. He said, beware of dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation, talking about legalism, judging people externally. For we are the circumcision, he writes to us as Christians, who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might have confidence in the flesh if anyone thinks he can play this game. I've gone off script here. If anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcise the eighth day out of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning uh, the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. And then now as Christians, we are forbidden, Paul says, to regard people in this way, but instead to view them instead 
based upon their words, based upon their deeds, based upon their character, based upon their heart, based upon the fruit in their life. Jesus said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. A life requires deeper inspection than just the leaves to understand what a tree is and what kind of tree it is. And the same thing is true of a human life. And to view people as individual human beings that bear the image of God, people God loves, people Jesus died to save, and people that are in need of the salvation. He says that is how you view them in the light of the cross. And there's so many verses that speak to uh, not judging people in this way. Uh, Famously in James chapter 2, James wrote, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality or with, with prejudice or respect of persons. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now Jesus says the same thing, only he says it much more concisely though all of it by the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus said, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And increasingly in our nation, politicians, educators, activists, media, others are actively promoting this kind of division among us, as citizens to serve their purposes. For example, promoting class warfare. The idea that all rich people are the same. And all all poor people are the same. And all rich people are bad people. The promotion of racial division within our nation and to the point of uh, being on the verge of stirring up a race war within our nation. The idea that all white people are bad or that all white people are racist and all black people are good or all black people are bad and all white people are good and so forth. You add the race and nationality in that you want. Pitting citizens against law enforcement as if every member of law enforcement is exactly the same and that all of them are bad. And then now even promoting vaccine warfare, pitting us against one another on the basis of whether a person is vaccinated against COVID or not. And then seeking to manipulate people's fears and prejudices in order to gain some kind of short-term advantage, to gain some measure of political power, or to produce some kind of change. But it is a very dangerous game to play. It is a very dangerous game to play. And any change you try to produce within a society that you must resort to racism or the manipulation of the carnal prejudice of people to achieve, that is not a good change. And that is not how you bring change about in a healthy way within a nation. And if for no other reason 
all of this to be rejected as Christians, then that it is completely contrary to the heart of God as He's revealed, the nature of God as He's revealed in the Scripture, and Jesus as He's revealed in the Scriptures. And one day you think you have all of this under control for political purposes. On the next day, like a fire, it explodes out of your control. And we know about that in California. Only it's a worse fire, the worst imaginable fire that you can light within a nation and within citizens of that nation. You lose all control of it. And when I hear someone state that all white people are the same, or they speak of white people as some kind of a monolithic or uniform group. I know as a white person, and I've been white all my life, as someone who has spent a lot of time as a result around white people in my life, that when I hear people say these kind of things, about white people that I am listening to an imbecile, a stupendously ignorant blockhead, so that, so that, so that, when another person at the other end of the spectrum tries to convince me as a white person that all black people or Asians or Hispanics or Jews or law enforcement officers or rich people or poor people are all of the same. And then to tempt me to cease to view them and to regard them individually, but now to view them as a monolithic group, then I will assess them in the same way and reject the message with the same force. And as Christians, Paul is saying, we are to play no part in this game that is being played every single day within our nation. And all of it is nothing like Jesus. It is nothing like His kingdom, which is made up of every kindred, every tribe, every tongue, every nation makes up the kingdom of God in this world presently and currently. And it's made up of every kind of person imaginable, and all of it is contrary to the teaching of God's Word. And we must not allow ourselves to be drawn into it. In fact, we're to actively resist it in our own lives from getting a foothold, and then actively resist it and its influence anywhere within the culture. And I know we know these things, but Paul brings it up again. And here, the importance of treating each person as Christ would treat that person, as speaking to a person in a relationship, treating them in that relationship in the way that He would treat them and what He would say to them. And that doesn't always mean saying the easy thing. Jesus has said a lot of hard things to me since 1980 when I gave my life to the Lord, but all of them have been good. And all of them have been necessary. So it doesn't mean that we become, you know, whatever would be that we, that this is a group hug all all the time in relationships. They're more sophisticated and nuanced than that in in being a Christian and being like Christ. But we we are like Christ in that uh, relationship. And it can be done. 
And Paul knew it can be done. Because as tense as things are surrounding all of this in our nation, nothing even remotely approaches the division and the hostility that existed between the Jew and the Gentile in Paul's day. There were religious Jews in his day who viewed the Gentiles as dogs. Imagine as a formulated view of another human being or a group of human beings in the world and to actually have your mind so poisoned that you view all of them as dogs. Some of them taught and believed that Gentiles were created by God solely to provide fuel for the fires of hell for eternity. And others would wake up, men would wake up in the morning and they would pray the prayer, I thank you God that I am not a woman, I am not a dog, and I am not a Gentile. And Gentiles came after dogs. Now you imagine a person leaving their home in the morning, walking down the street, going to the subway, getting their car, going to work, and that is the view that they have of every other non-Jew in the world. And, and that was the circumstances and the situation of the division between the Jew uh, and uh, the Gentile. And this was something of the environment that the Apostle Paul was raised in, and more than raised in, that he excelled in. And yet when he was born again and became a Christian, all of that got swept to the side, and God not only swept it to the side, but made him the apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul doesn't stop there in verse 16. He goes on to describe just how dangerous this kind of superficial judgment of others is. Because he declared that it was this very characteristic of his life that caused him to completely misjudge Jesus. And But for the grace of God to then miss the salvation that is found only in him. And previously because of the simplicity of Jesus' life. Because he came into the world in his first coming, not as a conquering king, but as a suffering savior. And because he died upon uh, the cross, Paul had judged Jesus to be merely a man. And he judged him to be a menace to Judaism rather than the fulfillment of Judaism. And he gave his life to violently opposing Christ and Christians and Christianity. You might remember in the book of Acts, he guarded the robes of the men who took off their robes to sit down and enjoy a nice banquet. No. Pharisees, religious men, who took off their robes so they could pick up stones and hurl them as ferociously as they could upon a man by the name of Stephen and made him the first martyr of the Christian church. And Paul said, I consented to his death. That's where Paul was before he became 
uh, a Christian. And then almost immediately, Saul, or he was Saul then and renamed Paul, he led this vicious persecution of Christians in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And then soon after that, Acts chapter 9, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, Christians, whether men or women, in Damascus, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And he would later write of who and what he was at this time in his life in giving his testimony in Acts chapter 26. He said, uh, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison. Imagine saying this now as a Christian having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them uh, often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. But when he became a Christian, he realized all of this previous judgments that he had of Jesus, they were carnal, they were shallow, they were unbiblical, and they were wrong. And they were as wrong as wrong could be because he did with Jesus what he did with everyone else. He judged him just on the outward appearances of Jesus. And instead, speaking about the great miracle that occurs in a Christian's life when we become a Christian, here you take all of this portrait of Paul before he comes to know the Lord as it's there in the Scriptures, and God makes him a man who then can write a passage of Scripture like this about Jesus and believe it to be true and know it to be true. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him all of the fullness of the Godhead should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And you ask yourself, what could be the explanation for a change like that in Saul's life, in Paul's life, in, uh, and, and to have this uh, change in his life concerning the most important thing in life and how I assess Christ and what I do with him. And he tells us in verse 17 where, where this change came from. And he introduced his third, this verse with his third therefore. And he said, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. 
He says, first of all, this change occurs in a person's life when they are in Christ. That is, born again. Born again by the Holy Spirit. As Jesus declared, unless a man or a woman be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this being born again, as Jesus declared it, is a description of a spiritual birth. And each of us has been born physically. That's the first birth. What's the, what is it that needs now to be born again in our life? What is the second birth that we must experience? It is a spiritual birth in order to have a, the capacity for a personal relationship with God. Because God has chosen to have relationship with man in the realm of the Spirit. And how does that happen? It happens when a single, simple individual like you and I comes to a place where we simply put our trust in Jesus Christ as heaven's Savior, as heaven's uh, Messiah, as the Son of God, that He is the Savior of the world, and in the fact that His death, His burial, and His resurrection provides us with the forgiveness of sins and the capacity for a personal relationship with God. As Jesus put it later in his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him, trusts in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And what happens when we do? And Paul wants us to know what happens in our life when we do so. God Himself, in the person of the Holy Spirit, comes into our lives. And He makes us a new creation. He produces a new nature within us, a nature that loves God, a nature that wants to know God, a nature that wants to obey God, and a nature that supplies us with the desire to do and the power to do of God's good pleasure within our lives. And the Greek word that Paul, two Greek words that Paul uses here for new and for creation are fabulous in what the point he's trying to make here. The, the Greek word uh, he, for new is uh, kanos, and it speaks of something uh, that which has come into being and was not previously present. Something that did not, ex did not exist a moment before and has now come to exist. And then the word creation, it speaks of the act of causing to exist that which did not exist before. And here you have the Apostle Paul taking these words, combining them to emphasize the same thing and declaring as strongly as he can that as a result of the spiritual birth, this being in Christ, we are not the same person we once were. We are a person who did not exist before, becoming a Christian. We are now that person. The miracle of God has occurred in our lives. In fact, not only a miracle of God, but it is the greatest miracle that anyone can experience uh, in 
their lives. The greatest miracle that can occur in all of the universe. Because saving a sinner, even just one sinner, is a greater work of God than His creation of the heavens and the earth. Everything that we can see with a microscope, everything that we can see with a telescope, everything that we can see with the naked eye. Because yes, God spoke all of those things into existence. Yes, all of it was a demonstration of His wisdom and of His power. But what is that to one who is infinite in His wisdom and in His power? But man's salvation is something entirely different. Our salvation required the death of His Son, His only begotten Son. He didn't have an infinite number of those to offer or to produce. He only had one, His only begotten Son. He didn't save us out of what is infinite. He saved us out of something that was very, very finite in the form of one Son who is uniquely qualified in human history in order to provide us with salvation. And the miracle of salvation, the miracle of being made a new creation, the miracle that has happened in you and in me, in every Christian in the world and throughout all of history is the greatest miracle imaginable. It dwarfs everything else in life. And the result of it, and he gives us two here, is that old things have passed away. And old things means ancient things. In other words, all of uh, that belongs to the old Adam nature. And, and part of Paul becoming a new creation was that in his life it was no longer dominated by hate, no longer dominated by violence, but now by love. And he no longer regarded people based upon their outward appearance, but based upon their life and upon their character, based upon how God sees people and how He regards people. And you look at the dramatic difference between the person that Paul was and that he became is a new creation. Old things had passed away. And the same thing is true of us. Take a moment and think about how our lives have changed. Look at what has passed away in our lives as a result of becoming Christians. What thinking has passed away? What judgmentalism has passed away? Uh, what vocabularies have passed away uh, in our lives? What practices have ceased within our lives? But Christianity isn't a ceasing alone. And so he goes on to the second thing and declares all things have become new. All, all of those old things have been replaced by new things. We've been given a new way of thinking, a new way of speaking, a new way of living, a new purpose in life, a new meaning in life that we never had before. New affections that we never had before. New meditations, holy, heavenly meditations for our heart and our mind that we never possessed before in, in our lives and supplied them to us. And so this morning as Christians... We celebrate being a new creation. And it's so important for us not to lose our awe over the miracle 
that has occurred in our lives as a result of being born again and the curse of familiarity. And the Apostle Paul never lost it all of his life. He never ceased to be in awe of it. And we must never cease to be in awe of it as well. The new creation that we have become at such enormous expense to the Godhead in order for we, us to be saved and to be changed in this way. Think about the person that we would still be and far worse if this miracle hadn't happened in our lives. I've been walking with the Lord since 1980. What if I didn't become a Christian and this new creation didn't come into my life, become a part of my life, and I now invested 40 plus years in the previous bondages of my flesh, my judgmentalism of other people, my anger, my wrath, whatever it might be in any of our lives. We would, none of us would have remained what we were at that time. We would have continued decades down the path through the years and become what? And I think as we think about the sins that have held us bondage, the weaknesses with some semblance of self-awareness in our life, the frailty, the weaknesses of, of our flesh, the things that are attractive to us, that are destructive to us and others, and to be able to look at those things and say, I shudder to think about the person I would be if I had continued to invest what is now the time that's been invested in my Christian life and in being a new creation in those things, I wouldn't want to be that person. I wouldn't want to be that person. I would have thrown away every valuable thing in my life if Christ hadn't come into my life. I'm that stupid. And I'm not alone in that. I don't know that I'd be alive as a non-Christian at this point in time. What a blessing. What an amazing thing to think that we are not what we once were, but we are not what we would have become, and we have become something entirely different. What an amazing salvation. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. And it's the truth and it's our testimony. And there's so much to be thankful for concerning that. God's been so good to us, it makes me think about a hymn that comes to my mind every once in a while. I was at a church ser uh, 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 a service in which a man got up and played it on the piano. And it's the simplest little hymn you'd ever want to hear. Just one line. Just uh, one short little line played over and over again. And it goes like this. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. Holy Spirit, won't you teach us more about His wondrous name? You see, a chorus or a hymn doesn't have to be profound. It can be 
very, very simple when it's bringing forth profound truth. Thank you, Father. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. Holy Spirit, won't you teach us more about his wondrous name? If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, I do want you to look at words uh, 2 and 3 in verse 17, the two words after the therefore, if anyone. And that if anyone is a wonderful word because anyone can become this new creation by putting our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Nobody is excluded, no matter what we've seen, no matter what we've done, no matter what we are, the bondages in, in our lives, the anything. God does not turn anyone away. Anyone can become this new creation. But he prefaces the, uh, 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 the, um, uh, he, he prefaces the anyone with a single word, if. And so God says, I will do this in any life, but I won't force you to make that decision. That if is in your court. God will make a new creation of any human being, but that if is your decision. It'd be terrible, you know, if we all got into heaven and there were a whole bunch of people up there that didn't want to be up there. Smoking on the corner and trash cans all lit up with fire and all dressed in all goth and everything and whatever image you might have in your mind. Nobody's going to be up there that doesn't want to be there. But he wants everybody to be there. But only you can make that decision for yourself. There's going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service. They'd love to pray with you to begin this relationship with God this morning. And for all of us, if you need prayer for anything in your life this morning, they would love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, once again we marvel at the sacrifice that was involved in allowing this great and greatest of all miracles to occur within our own lives. And we confess that we recognize that we are a miracle, a new creation, and we are so grateful that you made a way for that to happen. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus. And Jesus, thank you that you came. And we thank you this morning in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.